Chances are you are listening to this through headphones. Just imagine for a moment that from tomorrow, that was your primary sense. That is what happened to today's guest on Jimmy's Jobs. We sat down with Dr. Amit Patel, a best-selling author, diversity and inclusion consultant, motivational speaker, a member of the Board of Trustees for the Vision Foundation. He shares his incredible journey from qualifying as a doctor in emergency medicine to the moment he became blind and had to reinvent himself and an entire career. He'll share his thoughts on the importance of designing for the disabled and his involvement in the Sea Monster Project, which we interviewed Patrick O'Mahony from New Substance about at the end of last year. We'll explore the future of remote work and how the rise of audio, whether that be podcasts or the humble voice note, is improving things. We interview many inspiring individuals on this show, but few have shown the sheer grit, resilience, and the ability to repurpose their lives as much as Amit has. I hope you enjoy this episode. Amit, welcome to Jimmy's Jobs of the Future. Thank you so much for inviting me. We were talking just beforehand that you've got a television show coming out. Tell us about it. Yeah, you know what? It's such an exciting time in my life at the moment. Um, So during lockdown, um, my three-year-old at a time, obviously not going to nursery, uh, CBBS is on. And he said to me, he said, Dad, why isn't there families like us on TV? And when I said, what do you mean? He said, well, you see disabled people and you see Asian people, but you don't see Asian disabled people. You don't see families like us with a guide dog, doing normal things, or when you, if you do, there were special programs. And this is a three-year-old, this is a three-year-old who's grown up with, with a blind dad, who I thought would never really notice these kind of things, but did. Um, and then obviously, the, for me, the conversation went off to BBC, and it's like, well, why isn't there families like us on TV? And moving on two years, we have a show called The Dog Squad, which airs on um, CBBS on the 9th of November. And it follows five assistance dogs with their owners. And each of these dogs have their own unique powers. So Kika, my guide dog, has, has supervision. You've got a dog who's a hearing dog, who has super ears. You've got a rescue dog, emotional support animal, and a buddy dog. And the, and, and the series basically follows each of these dogs, every, every series, every episode, on a mission with their owners. Um, so it's great, to, it's great to see it through. But I play myself, my my guide dog plays herself. You probably hear her in the background in a minute. She's snoring away in the, just behind me. Um, but yeah, it's just uh, exciting. And do you know what? It, it's lovely that obviously CBBS is a big part of our our kind of lifestyle in the house. You know, we're having to, having a five year old and a, and a three year old, so it's always on. So it's 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 quite an exciting moment. I think I think they're more excited than I am. I'm a little bit nervous. And you you're also an an author, right? So this kind of creative process started perhaps with that yeah I, I i wouldn't say i'm a i'm a natural author um so i i lost my sight it'll be it'll be 10 years this year i lost it it'll be it was, it'll be 10 years in november so i lost my sight 10 years ago overnight due to a hemorrhage in the back of my eyes so i i was a, i was a trauma doctor i came home uh from work and this is the same year i got married so i got married in march i lost my sight in november i came home went to sleep and there was a blood clot in the back of my eyes. My eyes literally went pop. Um, so I had to re, I had to, I had to reinvent myself. I had to find my, my, I had to find my confidence, my independence and kind of live as a blind person. And my book very much 
is a journey um, of of my my life. It's it's from growing up in 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 Guildford in Surrey uh, to uh, to going to university, falling in love, getting married, and then losing my sight, and then my journey through sight loss. And it talks about the difficulties and the, and the, and the stigma of sight loss brings. Um, the difficulty about getting the, the help and the assistance that you need, that what, what people, what society see disabled people like, and then the wonderful moment that my guide dog is introduced into my life and the amazing journeys I've had. And then the two children that come along afterwards. So it's, it's very much, it's very much a life story. Um, but the lovely thing about that as well is that's being adapted to a film. Um, so it's, it's brilliant that someone has seen this and thought, well, actually we need to talk about this and we need to be able to showcase that, you know, having a disability doesn't mean that you don't have dreams or ambitions and you know, that you sit at home all day, which I don't, it's, and you know, many disabled people don't do this. We, you know, we all have dreams and ambitions and we all have these, these goals that we want to chase, but sometimes society kind of sees the disability and sees that doesn't see the ability of someone. So. Yeah, I think that's really true. We'll come back to that more. What I'd like to start is, though, you started out uh, in kind of emergency medicine, which is like right at the sharp end of kind of what medics witnessed and so on. What what attracted you to that? I can't sit still. I never have done. It's um, I've always from even from a young age been able to kind of think on my feet very very quickly. It's um, I like the rush of of you know waking up in the morning and not knowing what my day is going to be like. Um, emergency medicine is definitely that. So I was with the TA, I was with the MOD. I trained frontline, um, soldiers who were going out to the, to, to the war lines really. And it was, it was, it was that I was every day I woke up, I could never plan on what my day was going to take me. I was flown out for tsunamis, earthquakes, train crashes, plane crashes around the world. So I love that. I love the fact that my life was so busy, but. Once I got married, that, that busy lifestyle doesn't work. It, it's, you're not home. Um, so I was, we were, we, I actually sat down with my wife just a few months before I lost my sight. And I said, look, I'm going to, I'm going to go down the GP line. It's the worst nightmare for me personally, but it meant that I get to see my wife. It, it's that compromise. It's, it's, you know, we, 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 we just got married. I've got to see you. Um, so yeah. So just before I lost my sight, it was that whole. I'm going to be a GP just so I could do the, you know, do the nine to fives and, and I'd actually be at home. And I've also seen that you, since becoming blind, you've also driven around the top gear track as well. <laughs> so I was sitting there thinking that must be like, are you a bit of an adrenaline junkie then? Absolutely. I learned to fly before I learned to drive. Um, <laughs> so it's that, that probably says it all. My, my, my wife says, you know, if I have any spare time on my hands, I get myself into trouble. So it, it's very much, I like to, I like to push the boundaries. I kind of, for, for me, it's, it's when someone says, oh, you can't possibly do that. So I right, I'm going to find a way to do this. Um, driving was a huge part of my life when, when I was sighted. Um, I drove a patrol car, I had the lights, I had the sirens. Um, I used, I used to enjoy driving. It used to be at my, my time when I was in the car, it was my time. Um, obviously when I lost my sight. My wife hid the keys, you know, um, because there's always a temptation just to sit in the driver's seat for a while. Um, so when I, after I lost my sight, I got in touch with Toyota and I said, I know you've got a huge headquarters in Epsom. Any chance I can just drive around, you know, just drive around. That's all I want to do. And it was funny that the, um, 
the, uh, the head of PR at Lotus and Toyota follows me on social media. And he said, actually, Amit, I know your background. I know what you can achieve and what you're capable of doing. Let me, hold, let, he said, leave it to me for a while and I'll get back to you. And I thought I'll never hear from him again. A couple of weeks later, he said, meet me at an aerodrome in Oxford and we'll go from there. So I, I got there very early in the morning. Um, got to drive a GT86 up and down the runway on a disused airfield. And it was with a guy called Mark, uh, who used to be an ex-rally driver. And he bet, went back to Toyota and he said, actually, I think Amit has got more control over the vehicle than a lot of sighted people. Um, so Toyota came back to me and said, look, we sponsor Top Gear. We provide them the car for the, um, the, uh, the reasonably fast car on, on, on their segment of Top Gear. We'll get you on there. So it just, just happened that we had one day of practice in the rain um, at Dumsfold. And then the next day we did the filming. Uh, but the only requirement was, I mean, don't wreck the car. We need it for filming the next day. And this was a car without dual control. This was the actual car they use on Top Gear. So it was right. all dual control in this car. There's this the actual, every time the car came in, it got polished and cleaned up and off I went again. Um, but yeah, we made, made top five. And I yeah. always like to say, I like to say, if, if I didn't have my co-driver Mark in the drive, in the passenger seat, I reckon I could have shaved off a couple of thousands per seconds, made it top three. That's, that's brilliant. I mean, what, what have been the other things that you've noticed, like becoming blind, people talk about sort of other senses being increased and, and so on. Yeah. What, what have the other impacts that people might not expect have been? I, I don't think my, I don't think my hearing or my touch or anything has kind of got better. I think you just rely on it because I don't have, I don't have my sights. So you can't let you reliant on your other senses. So you just pay more attention to them. Um, to the point where sometimes there's an overload of, so you, you can be in a really busy train station and you can hear everything. And the mm. trick then is to, to isolate the sounds kind of around you and not listen to sounds which are too far away because you want to keep yourself safe. Um, but even, even learning to read Braille, so I learned to read Braille at the age of, 30, in my thirties and, and being able to just running my finger over Braille meant absolutely nothing to me whatsoever. So for, for weeks, my, my Braille teacher said to me, look, Amit, if you just rub a bit of sea salt on your fingers every evening while you just sat there, you know, just kind of increase the sensitivity in your index finger. And that's what I did. So all these little tricks to, to kind of heighten the sensitivity. And now, no, Braille is my life. I, I use Braille every single day. Um, but it's, you, you definitely, you definitely, you definitely, um, use your hearing a lot more. Anyway, it's, it's just one of the things to keep you safe when you're out and about. You, you touch and feel everything. You toe and you heal a step when you're kind of walking down the road. So you tend to find you, when you buy a pair of trainers, you need to buy five pairs exactly the same because you know they work and you can feel the floor. All these little things, I, you know, standing in front of a mirror, I don't know what I look like anymore. And that's, that's really annoying, you know, because I saw myself last. I didn't have, there was nobody who told me, oh, I mean, you're going to wake up tomorrow morning and you're going to be completely blind. I didn't take that mental picture of everything around me. But then I say, you know, my wife is never going to age. She's always going to look the same as she did 10 years ago. Um, but you just, you just kind of, you learn to adapt, I think. But I think the hardest thing is as much as how, it doesn't matter how confident I am. I can go out there. I've learned to use a white cane. It takes three months to use a, to learn to kind of navigate your way around London, with, you know, with a white cane. I've learned to read Braille. I've learned to use assistive technology like screen readers and uh, adaptive technology. Um, but then it's not so much 
how you feel. It's it's how society sees you, which is the hardest part. It's it's you know people see a disability. They don't see your ability. They see the disability, and they or they always say, "Oh well, you can't be you can't do this, or you can't be a parent. You can't look after your child. How how are you going to take them to the park? How are you going to take them to school? How are you going to sit down with them and do their homework?" There's ways around it. People just don't understand that, despite being disabled, you can be whoever you want to be. You can do whatever you want to do. You just find other ways of doing it. Yeah, I I find it all really. Um really in- inspiring and so talk to us about that reinvention that was probably the hardest thing i think i think when i lost my sight because it went so quickly it literally went overnight so it went, i woke up next morning and that was it so I, I didn't say anything being a doctor i think was probably the worst part of the time but, you know for me it was very much well i know i'm not going to get my sight back there's nothing to hold on to i'd rather not be a doctor and for someone to say oh Matt, i mean just have a little bit of hope or a little bit of faith you know it might come back that would have been great but in the back of my head i kind of knew there was no coming back from from sites to the, you know from from this darkness, um, but you kind of kind of for me you, I was I was angry because I I qualified as a qualified doctor I was doing everything I wanted to do in life I just got married life was to me was I was living the best part of my life right there and then everything got taken away, um, and then it's but how do you live in in darkness you know everything I knew was with sight. So just, just making a cup of tea, walking around your own house, something that you're, you're familiar with takes time and energy. How are you going to go out into the big wide world and do what you want to do? And so for, for, for a couple of months, I just went quiet. I didn't know what to say, what to do. Um, people were t- even saying to my wife, oh, well, you married a doctor and now you're going to have to look after him for the rest of his life. And my wife would turn around and say, well, no, actually, I didn't marry a doctor. I married Emmett and he's in there somewhere. And once he's ready to, to kind of fight and kind of get back on his feet again, we're here to help him. Um, but the, one of the turning points was, so when I lost myself, I didn't want, I didn't want to show my parents how, how, how much it hurts, you know, not just physically because my eyes literally went pop. So there was a lot of pain in there, but emotionally as well, I, I kind of, I didn't want, I wanted to stay strong. Um, and I, I didn't, I didn't want to, I didn't want to shed any tears in front of my parents. I didn't want to show them that it really is, you know, I am the, I am the lowest I've ever been in my life. Um, one day my dad came around and we we're having a cup of tea and I think my emotions were so high and I just started crying in front of my dad. And I said, dad, why am I going through this? Why do I have to do, why am I going through all this pain, all this anguish? And my dad came over to me, gave me a hug and he said, Amit, think about it. Everything you have in life, you've worked for. We've never given you anything. We've always been there to help and support you and kind of get you back up again if you had your little falls. But everything you have, it's you. This is just another hurdle. When you're ready, we're here to help you. And my dad, a couple of years later, said that was the hardest thing he had to hold back because he could have said that to me at any time when I lost my sight. He had to pick that right moment when I was vulnerable and ready to listen to my dad's message. That, and he said that that was the hardest thing he's ever had to do is, is hold that message back. But he said it to me at the time I really needed to hear it. And I kind of felt back and I thought, well, actually, this is true. And I've got an amazing support network. I can, I can, you know, turn to my wife and say, I need help with this or turn to my parents and say, how do I do this? And from, from that, it was very much getting, getting help from uh, local authorities, local charities, national charities and saying, right, how can I live the life I want to live? How, how can I become a blind person in this sighted world, but still have dreams and ambitions and, and, and hope? Um, 
and it doesn't come overnight. It's 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 you know it's a tricky path. It's uh, and it, it's a it's a lottery of where you live to how much help and support you get. Um, but I was very lucky, um, and I made some amazing friends along my kind of sight loss journey. And I'm still on this sight loss journey. I still learn new things every day. And that peer support of someone turning around to me who's also visually impaired said, I know how you feel, Amit. Because when a sighted person says, I know how you feel, they don't. You can close your eyes for five minutes, but you can open up again and off you go. For me, it's, it's dark every single day. So finding the help, finding the support. And then that, that smile just started coming back. And once that smile started coming back, I knew I was there. You know, I was, I was there to fight against, you know, anybody who says you can't do this. Yeah, and I can tell from all the videos and all the things, and as chatting before, that smile is just yeah, it's always there and it, genuinely happy now. Which is, I've, I've never been this happy in my life, which is weird to say. My life hasn't been this beautiful, this loud, this energetic, you know, this hectic. But I love it. I absolutely love it. And 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 it's crazy that even though my world is dark, it isn't. It's, it's full of colors, full of love. It's, it's it's full of hope in a weird way. Looking back 10 years ago, I thought I'd never, ever experienced this. So it's, um, yeah, just, just nice to be happy. The reinvention of yourself has also been, you know, you've partly reinvented as a career as, as well. And now you advise a lot of corporates and businesses on accessibility. And it's interesting. I was watching an interview with Rory Sutherland, the, you know, the advertising tycoon talking about how actually, you know, some of us are disabled different times and and so on and talks about how now that all places have door handles rather than doorknobs in corporate offices as a kind of classic one because then people without arms can still sort of open it so i'd love to know a bit more about how you know a what you do and which companies you work with and just talk us through that about how you make places kind of more inclusive yeah so i did i honestly didn't want to be self-employed I, when I lost my sight, I learned to obviously use assistive technology, learned to read Braille. So I started with the help of the RNIB, started filling in, um, uh, applications for work. Just these are, these are simple, these are things, these are research or admin, something to get me back into the workplace. Cause I've been out for a few years. I thought I need to kind of get back into the workplace. I need to get my, get my head around the fact that I can do this and kind of just, just get my confidence back up. But I would fill in my applications and I would declare that I'm visually impaired. Then I'll, I'll leave it at that. And um, we, I applied for over 100 jobs and I didn't get a call back for any of them. Not one. Not one to say, yeah, come in for an interview. So I was, I was having a conversation with my wife. And my wife said, I mean, it's not your CV because you've got your CVs there. It's, it's the fact that you put down your visually impaired. You're, you're totally blind. So we picked out 10 random applications that we, we submitted. This time around, submitted them over again without putting out, without putting in that, uh, I'm visually impaired. I got a call back for every single one of them. Um, so obviously walked in with my white cane for my interview and my first interview, I was told by, by the head of HR in a big corporate bank that I didn't disclose that I was visually, that I was visually impaired, which I don't have to do. And I said to him, well, are you looking at my disability? Are you looking at my ability and my CV and everything that I can bring along to the organization? He said, oh, that's fantastic. But the fact that you didn't declare you're blind we're not sure we can work with you or you're not a great suit for our office. You know, you're not going to fit in or our technology doesn't work with your screen reader. It all does. That's all irrelevant. Yeah. But the fact that I'm quite a confident guy and I'll keep getting back up again if I'm, if I'm, you know, if I get pushed down. And I thought to myself, well, 
if I'm having these issues, how many other people are having these issues? So I started working with charities and talking, looking at how many people are going into employment who are disabled. And the figures are incredible. The fact that there's so many people who can go, so many disabled people who go through mainstream school, college, university, come out with a degree, but then can't get a job because of their disability. It's just, you know, it's, it's mind boggling that people think that they haven't got the ability. So I've got, we've, I've got a really, really good friend, um, who, who is called, who's called Shastra. She, she works for the inclusive group. And she said, Amy, you need to, you need to talk about this a bit more. You need, you need to tell people that, you know, about disability and kind of bring those barriers down. Let people, let not be afraid of disability and kind of bring it into mainstream conversations. So I started doing talks for, for big law firms, um, corporates talking about disability and why don't you have disabled people? What are you so afraid of? Is it, is it a technology? This is a service that available. The government have got lots of schemes available to help disabled people back into the workplace, take advantage of it. Um, and on the back of that, I think people heard me talk, talk and then I, I get flown around the world now to, to talk about disability, talking about bringing disabled people into the workplace because we're not all the same. The way I think about something is completely different to the way you think about something, you know. So it's, why wouldn't you want that in your workplace? We all talk about having a diverse workplace. We all talk about being, you know, being open to disability. But reality is that most organizations aren't. There's so much more that can be done to get disabled people. People find it difficult. And it's, it's incredible that you can, you can have this amazing degree, but then an employer doesn't believe that you can do the task that a sighted person can. Um, yeah. So working on the Sea Monster project, it's, it's a project that is, it's, it's an art piece. It's, it's very much a visual art piece, but I was brought in right from the beginning because, uh, Nikki Halifax, who, who's, who's, um, who's on the team knew how passionate I am about accessibility and about being inclusive. And even though the sea monster is a temporary art project for me, it has to be open to everybody. We've got 14 million disabled people in this country, over 14 million. Um, and sometimes disability is kind of overlooked, uh, when it comes to art, it doesn't matter about your ability or disability. The only reason you don't want to go on it is because you don't want to go on it, not because you can't. And how do you, so yeah, we interviewed Patrick in a previous episode, uh, who created Sea Monster. So it's, if you haven't listened to that episode, it's, it's an oil rig that has been converted off the coast of Western Supermare, uh, into this incredible art and environmental installation, which is, um, super, um, how do you go about sort of making an, an oil rig accessible? Talk us through the process. Because I yeah, think it's, so, I think it's a really interesting example for corporates listening to think like, because they can't, you know, they don't see it right from their side absolutely. necessarily as much. Right? Absolutely. So, I'm usually the one who's bought into a project right at the end when there's no budget, there's no time, but yeah, I have to make it accessible. Yeah. Um, so like, you know, I'm, I'm the, I'm the, I'm the, I'm not the nice guy at the end of it because I'm like, well, what doesn't work? We need to change this. We need to change this. With, with, with the Sea Monster project, I was there with the designers right at the beginning. So obviously with designers, they've got this amazing picture. They've got their renderings. I come along and I'm like, mm, no, this doesn't work. I didn't have to do that this time because we actually had a conversation about how do people interact with the Sea Monster. Now, for me, I don't see it, but I can feel it. So it's not a one dimensional kind of art project. It's a multi-dimensional, you know, it doesn't matter what your, what, what your disabilities are. You're going to have other senses. We want to make sure all your other senses are heightened when you come and visit the sea monster. 
So it's just about the touch, it's about the feel, about the atmosphere, but also about the way we use language, the way around, around disability, the way, you know, is the website accessible? Because sometimes you can't even get onto the seat, you know, onto projects because you can't access, access the seat, the, the websites, it's not screen reader compatibility compatible or it's not, you know, you can't invert the text or change anything around or it's just too much moving images. All of these things were considered right at the beginning. So it's who are we going to, who, you know, if this is open to the masses, we had lots of focus groups to say what works, what doesn't work. We brought it all together. So being it all right from the beginning meant we're not spending any extra to it. The designers are, are working around the accessible concept. I didn't want two paths. I didn't want an able path and a disabled path. That's what usually, uh, you know, I'm usually told when I want to go and see an art exhibition, oh, okay, because you're blind, we, we do a special tour at eight o'clock on a Wednesday evening uh, for 45 minutes. On a Wednesday evening, I'm putting my children to bed. There's nowhere I can come and see you. I want that yeah. freedom like everybody else, just to turn up, just to be able to go around, walk around, ask for help if I want to, or be independent if I want to, get all the information. So all of these things, you know, is, it was considered. So sitting around the table with the designers, with, with the entire team to say, this is what we need. We just need to tweak a little bit here, here and there, make, make, make it accessible right from the get go. So we're not having to put on shiny little bits here and, and kind of adapt things afterwards. Um, cause the, the concept of the scene was, was very much, it shouldn't look like it's been plucked out of the North Sea and dropped into Western Superman. And, you know, we don't want shiny little footways, which are very obvious that these are accessible and these are, these are non-accessible. Everybody has the same path. And I love that. Everybody's kind of walking around. But the lovely thing is, I was up there just, uh, just last week and we had a lady who came in in a wheelchair and she said, this is probably the easiest kind of work of art on an external kind of, um, art exhibition she's ever been to because she's got, she's got two young kids who aren't disabled. Her husband isn't disabled yet. They're all taking the same path. They're all experiencing this journey all at the same time. And she said, this is what it should be like. And that to me is very much the heart of it. Cause I've got, I've got two young kids and my wife isn't disabled. So I want to kind of do what everybody else does. I don't want to be told when to come to see it, how long I've got or be, or, or be put in this disabled pen. Like a lot of, um, exhibitions have because you're disabled, you have to go and sit in that pen and we'll tell you when you can go and what you can do and what you can see. None of that. So if we can do it, why can't everybody else? Exactly. If we can do it for a yeah transformed oil rig, then yeah, why? Yes, absolutely. Then you know, an oil rig isn't an accessible. <laughs> it is. It's never meant to be accessible. But but that you know, you go and look at it, and you kind of think, well, the walkways look like they're weathered and they're plot of it, and that's how it looks, and that's how it is, and everybody's taking the same journey. Um, nobody's really thinking. You know, when you think about accessibility, a flat, you know, a step-free pr- platform means that not only wheelchair users, but parents with buggies it's you know mobility issues you're not having to climb the steps we've got places you can sit and rest but then our staff are also trained on disability awareness they can assist you if you want the help or they can guide you around you know and, and take you around but if you're if you're more than comfortable doing it yourself absolutely fine yeah I, I, yeah I, I mean it's a brilliant projects on so many levels we've we've enjoyed it and all the work that new substance are doing with drone technology and all sorts is um is incredibly uh, exciting. Um, so g- talk us through some of the other projects you've kind of been involved in as well. A lot, a lot of my work is working with large organizations on getting disabled people back into the workplace. So I'm, I'm a trustee for a charity called Vision Foundation. 
And we're a grant-giving charity, but we do a lot of work in getting um, visually impaired people back into the workplace. So I go and talk about, I go and literally go to big organizations and say, why don't you have, they say, what, what is your fear on disability? It's bringing those barriers down. And for me, my you know, 10 years ago, if you would have said, oh, you know, you're going to lose your sight, I'd say, no, don't be silly. But it happened to me. Um, and then finding my way back into employment was difficult. And I see the barriers. So it's, it's, it's kind of, for me, it's getting organizations to, to change the way they see things. It's the way, you know, how, how do they advertise their jobs? You know, are they, are they disabled friendly in the workplace? Can they, you know, it, it, if you're changing people's mindsets, people are more likely to kind of open up to new suggestions. For me, it's, it's very much my life story. It's, it's, you know, be, from being a doctor to do, to doing what I do now, it was a necessity because I wanted to get back into the workplace. I wanted to show people that I've got the, the skills and the ambitions to, to, to actually have a career. I'd rather be honest, still still go and go and be employed by someone i'd rather go and do a nine to five and come home being being self-employed is very very difficult yeah. you know it's something i didn't really want to do um but it works and i find that i find i find i find people are listening i, I work with amex i work with amazon um i work with google um meta so all you know these are big organizations who have the capability of doing big things and getting big you know disabled back into the workplace I remember before lockdown, I was working with uh, three large banks in Canary Wharf, and I was trying to get three individuals into work. And, and the excuses I was always getting is our computers can't cope working from home because disabled people are great. You know, we can, we can, we can make it into offices if we, but if we can work from home, sometimes taking that commute away actually takes that stress away. Um, I, I was, cause you imagine, imagine, imagine that morning commute on a, on a Monday morning. At a busy train station in London, if you don't have to do it and you can do your job from home, wouldn't that just be a little bit easier? And I was, I was being told that, oh no, we can't do it. Our systems can't do it. Lockdown kicked in. Two days later, everybody's working from home. So I went back to these three organizations. I said, well, six months ago, you said you can't do this. Now you can. What's stopping you from hiring these three vision impaired people? And they did. Yeah. They all, all three, do you know what? It's, it's, I, I, if, if you, the thing with me is, if you tell me you're going to do something, I will keep knocking at your door until you, you've done it. Um, I, remember, I remember going and doing a talk for, for uh, an insurance company in central London. And I get to the, I get to the building. Uh, so I've done my homework. I know to take a left and a right from every. So my guide dog is trained to go from curb to curb. Yeah. So before I leave the house, I need to map my route out. So when I come out of the station, I need to get to the curb, get my dog to take a left and take a right and cross over and find the building. So I've done all of this. I've, I've kind of got outside the building and there's revolving doors. My dog is trained not to go through the revolving doors because it could get its tail caught. But any building with revolving doors have large doors on the side for, for wheelchair users. So I, I find, find the large doors on the side, but there's no intercom or no bell to indicate that I'm standing outside. 15 minutes later, someone eventually comes out and says, are you okay? And by this time, I'm already really angry because I can't even get into yeah. the building. Um, then I'm doing my talk about inclusivity and disability within the workplace. And in the back of my head, I'm still really, really angry. And I thought, you know what? I'm going to say this. So I, 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 I said, look, you know, this is great. It's great what you're doing and trying to get in disabled people into the workplace, but I couldn't even get into your building. Um, I had no idea the CEO was sat in the audience. Um, I could hear the, oh my gosh, this is what was Amit saying? You know, this is not going to go down too well. 
Um, after my talk, the CEO came over to me and said, look, I had no idea. Nobody even mentioned this to me. We literally sent someone out to the, hard, to, to the DIY shop to get a, a wireless bell, just, just as a temporary means until they get something fitted. A week later, I get a phone call to say I've got an intercom system fitted now. Um, so sometimes, you know, if you don't know, it's not there yeah. or, you know, you don't have to, you don't struggle with those issues. You might not know it's there. Um, but the fact that someone gets it, you know, here's the issues and gets it fixed straight away. I love that. I love the fact that, you know, there's, there's someone actually working on it. But for me, it's also, you know, if I'm talking, I need the right people in the room. Those people who can make the decisions, those people who can say, actually, we are doing this wrong. We could be better. You know, we will be better. And, and, and actually implement that. Yeah, that's, it's, um, it's really powerful. Um, really powerful to hear. How do you describe what you do to people? <laughs> so I, uh, I, I guess I'm a diversity inclusion consultant, um, mainly. Uh, I, th- I think I'm passionate about, about that. But then my work, my paid work, probably only about 40% of what I do, 60% is campaigning. Because... When I lost my sight, we, we came across so many barriers, um, uh, trying to get help and assistance, uh, trying to raise awareness. Um, so I've, I've got a very understanding wife yeah. who, who, who understands that 60% of my time will go into just campaigning and talking about issues that need to be changed, you know, be it at, uh, board levels, be it going into parliament or 10 Downing Street and talking about this. I remember, I remember when my son was six months old, he was coming to 10 Downing Street with me in a chest harness. Um, and that, that, that was my office for, for two days a week. It's making sure that disabled people aren't seen as disabled people. Yeah. I'm, my, my job is very much to make sure that any, any people, every, every person is seen as a person and it, it doesn't matter what their disabilities or ability is. It's, I want to be part of the community. I don't want to be that bystander. I don't want people talking down to me. And if I find I get that a lot being disabled, people will talk to me and not expect an answer. People will come up to me and say, just completely random straight, oh, how did you lose your sight? I'm like, I don't know you. I have no idea who you are. I'm literally waiting for a train uh, on, 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 on the platform. Um, and then, then I'm the rude one because I don't answer the question. Yeah. It's, it's that. It's, 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 you know, disabled people are taking advantage of. Disabled people, I get called up all the time to, be, to, to work and, and go and do talks and events. And the moment you say, oh, um, is there a budget? I say, oh, are you expecting to be paid? Well, everybody else in the room is being paid. Yeah. I'm doing all the work and you're, and oh yeah, but I just thought you might want to raise this issue. I'm like, yeah, pay me and I'll raise this issue. You know, it, it's that we take, we get taken advantage of a lot. It's getting people back into the workplace. It's, it's campaigning on disability rights. It's, well, being an author, being, uh, you know, having our own TV show, which is, which is great. Um, but it's, it's, it's raising awareness is, is my main thing. Is, is showcasing that despite having a disability, I am living the best life. Yeah. Do you, do you think there's something like in, in the language that, yeah, I'm fascinated by language and, and what it infers and so on. Um, and it's something we've got much better at in the 21st century, like in, in lots of regards, but disabled people still being referred to as disabled. Do you think, do you think there's a way that the language can be, can be more inclusive around it? Yeah. Do you know what it's? I, d- I don't mind. I don't mind someone referring to me as disabled. That's absolutely fine. But as long as it, they, I'm not, they, they don't, they don't see me as disabled in a way. You know, it's, 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 it's having that 
it's being afraid of disability. I think a lot of people don't understand this, but if you've never had, if you've never been around disability, you don't understand how other people kind of do things if they have an impairment. Um, so, you know, I, I don't mind, I don't mind being classified as disabled, but I don't want you just to see me as a disabled person. I want you to see me of what I can, you know, what I can achieve, what I can deliver, what I can bring to an organization, um, what I've done previously and, and, and kind of grade me on that as opposed to just kind of shoehorning me as, as a disabled person. Cause it, it's quite funny. I say, I say, well, if I go and apply for a job, I'm going to tick two boxes, the Asian box and the disabled box, you know, but I don't want to tick the disabled in the Asian box. I want you to, to take me for, for who I am, what I can bring. And, and I guess sometimes I don't see what I achieve. You know, it's really hard to, to be in a room and, and be in front of maybe 500 people and have a conversation and have, you know, I'm, I'm up on stage. I don't get the feedback. I'm listening yeah. out for people kind of yawning. I don't see the facial expression. So I walk away thinking, was that a good talk or was that a bad talk? It's only when the feedback comes in, I'm like, okay, I've hit the nail on the head here. You know, it's, it's work. But then I've never advertised my work. I've never gone out and, and said, this is what I do. Come and, come and hire me. My work is, is, is busy. I'm, I'm, I'm booked up two years in advance for a lot of my jobs. Um, so I kind of, sometimes my wife turns around and goes, look, Amit, you are actually quite good at what you do, yeah. you know, because it's that self-doubt sometimes, you know, right? it's that imposter syndrome. I'm in a room and I kind of think to myself, should I be here? I mean, I have to pinch myself and go, actually, yeah, you do have to be here because you've earned the right to be here and you're doing something worthwhile. Um, so it's language is language is a huge thing. I think I think sometimes people don't know how to talk to disabled people, so they don't. And the funny thing is, I the the one question I get asked a lot on social media is, if I see someone disabled in a busy environment, should I go and offer assistance? Now, as a visually impaired person, I'm vulnerable. I'm very vulnerable. I don't see the dangers around me. I could be at a train station, and you get that announcement: the train is now leaving from platform six instead of platform two. I've never been to platform six. I have no idea, but you can hear thousands of people yeah. running to platform six and you kind of think, oh boy, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to miss my train, but someone will see you and someone will come over and say, would you like some assistance? And you kind of think, do you know what? There is good people out there. There is some amazing people out there. So it's, it, for me, it's, if you, if you see someone who looks like they might need some help, go over, introduce yourself and say, are you okay? Would you like some help? And they say, yes, ask them, how can I help you? And it's as simple as that, you know, it's, uh, It'll make what well, I promise you. It'll make you feel good when you when you kind of you do you do that. But it, it you will you'll be helping someone like me from from navigating you know a busy environment to, to taking all that pressure and that, that stress away to, to actually walking around with a big smile on your face even at peak time. Where would you like it to get to in ten years time? Because there's no doubt you have achieved like a, a huge amount and the, just the reinvention alone that that you've had to do career-wise and, and so on, uh, you know, is extraordinary. What, where in 10 years' time would you like to be doing? I, I would love to follow up with the companies I've worked with. And for them to turn around and say, yeah, I mean, there's absolutely no divide between disabled people and able people. We have no, there's no, you know, we have, we have so many, you know, we have people from all disabilities working for us. It doesn't matter what your, you know, your disability is, but we, we can, we, can, we make it work. You know, we're in, and a lot of organizations say inclusive all the time. Yeah. But reality is not inclusive. They could be much better. And, and it's that it's, I want, I want, you know, I don't want to be judged by a disability. I don't, I don't want anybody to be judged by a disability. I want people to have the right to, to go and apply for a job and, and for someone not to judge them because of their disability or, 
or say that they're not going to be a right fit in, or, or that, you know, our company isn't right for disabled people. Um, person. But um, for me, it's, it's, it's taking that barrier away. The more I talk about disability, the, the, the companies I work with, it, it's, it's lovely to get the feedback to say, actually, Amit, you know, we are thinking differently now. We, we never heard this. You know, nobody's been quite open and honest about it. Um, and I am. I'm very open and honest because it is real life. My, my life completely changed. And I found it so difficult to get back into the workplace. Um, and I don't, want, I don't want to walk into a room and people see a disability. I want people to walk in. I want to walk into a room and people see Amit. Yeah. And, and that's slowly changing. You know, I, I, the Seamonster project is a great one. To the point where I use a screen reader all day long. And it's like, it's like someone nagging me all day long because you hear the same voice over and over and over again. I find I have, I change my voices on my screen reader all the time. So it's got an Indian accent, which my wife just can't stand. It's, it's got, it's got Portuguese accent, American accent, because it, it takes it away from being a, a mundane report to, to now I'm actually listening and it's a different voice and someone else talking to me. My, the team at Seamonster noticed I do this because I have three monitors going at the same time with three different voices going on. And they thought, well, actually, instead of sending Amit an email, we send him a voice message. It might just be better. And, I, and the first, first person who's uh, Ali from the team sent me a voice message. Um, and I, and I, I listened to the message. I thought, do you know what? They get me. They actually get me. They, I've, I've been in the office for a while, you know, and I haven't bumped into anything, haven't broken anything. But they actually get, they have an understanding of what works for me and what doesn't work for me. So instead of typing out an email, I send me a voice message. It doesn't take them any longer. But it makes it more inclusive for me. And I'm like, well, actually, they're understanding this. And then hopefully, you know, they get, go on to work on other, other projects. They're, they're, inc- they're, you know, they've been mindful of who they're working with and how that person works and how that person takes in the information and how that person responds to things. So it's, so it's nice to see things developing in, the, in that kind of way. And I never find, I, I guess for me, it's, it's working with companies and organizations and I don't see the disabled side of things. They just seem me, you know, um, but I guess for my work as well, I do a lot of, I do a lot of networking and networking's great, but when you can't see who's in the room, it's really, really difficult. You could be in a room for 300 people, but you feel like you're the only one in there because you have to wait for people to come to you to introduce themselves. And you know, you're, you're not quite yeah. sure where people are. So you know, a lot of my work is networking. I can take my guide dog, but the problem with taking my guide dog is she attracts people everybody wants to talk about the dog so you don't actually network at all you just talk about the dog yeah so i i will i will leave her at home and i will consciously go in with my white cane and then i'll just have to bump into people and that's that's just how i start a conversation oh, oh i'm so sorry you know i've just bumped into you oh who are you and and, and that you kind of have to take yourself out of your comfort zone and i found that a lot is i've had to take myself out of my comfort zone and push it, it comes really tiring you know when you're consciously thinking about what's around you um, how are you going to get home in the evening? You know, all of these things are all in my head while I'm at a meeting. It's, it takes a lot of brain power. It takes a lot of energy. It takes a lot of stress. So by the time you get home, you've actually feels like, it feels like you've done two days of work as opposed to one day of work. Yeah. And then you've got to do it again. Um, I think taking some of that pressure away, you know, having organizations understand how disabled people work, making it a little bit easier. It could be, you know, could, could change the way the, the workplace is that COVID already has. We were talking before, one of the questions that we asked as well is like, you know, what's one piece of content that you would kind of really recommend podcast or, or something that's helped you on your journey? Do you know, there's, there's a great podcast. It's, it's called Dadvengers. 
and it's it's a podcast that started off during lockdown, and it's it's um it's it's a guy called Nigel Clark. He's a he's a presenter for for CBBS. Um, he does the the baby club and the toddler club. Um, and he 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 noticed that there's a lot of dads out there, but there's no support group for dads. Um, so he started this podcast series over, over lockdown. Um, and it literally is a club of dads. Um, and we, we can, we can moan, we can, we can get together, we can get advice from each other. Um, there's meetups. Um, I was, I was at the, um, the, the, uh, the baby show just last week with you and, you and Thomas, the Olympian oh, yeah, yeah. up on stage talking about being dads. Um, and we pulled in the biggest crowd, um, uh, throughout the whole weekend. And it's that I, th- I think being being part of that the kind of dad's club is great because they don't see the disability. They see me as a dad, which is fantastic. You know, we all have the same issues being a dad. Um, so it's 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 that I I you know like listening to other dads having the same issues I have. It kind of th- I kind of think, oh, okay, yeah. Do you know what? I'm not doing anything wrong. Um, this you know because. I would usually go to I would go to the baby clubs um, at my local library, and I'll be the only dad there. I'll be the only disabled dad there. Um, so you're kind of on your own for a lot of the time. So it's nice to kind of be. And I tried to I tried to join disabled mums groups, but I used to get kicked off because I wasn't a mum. I was a dad, um, and I'm like, well, we're all disabled. Can't we just help each other? No, no, no. I mean, it's it's a, it's a it's a mums group. You know, Dad Vengers is is fantastic. It it, it works. It's uh, it's hilarious at times. Um, the things kids get up to, um, but it's, it's seeing it from a dad's point of view, yeah. which, which is fantastic. Yeah. Yeah. Definitely. Oh, well, I'm, I'm a hundred percent going to check that out. I mean, oh yeah, absolutely. It's fantastic. It's, it's you know what? It'll, it'll make you smile and put on the podcast. And it's one of those things that I can, I can actually stop what I'm doing. And I can just sit down and listen to it. It's, um, yeah. That, that's real power of audio, isn't it? When, when that oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, I mean, it's been brilliant to have you on uh, the show. Such an inspiring story on so many levels. Where are you kind of most active? Uh, yeah, so Twitter, Twitter. Um, so Twitter, you can find me at um, blinddad underscore UK. And that's the same for Instagram. Or you can look, check out my uh, webpage at dramit.uk. Brilliant. Uh, Amit, thanks so much for coming on. It's uh, it's been great to to chat, and um, yeah, look forward to to working more with you at various speaking conferences over the years and so on. Thanks for listening to Jimmy's Jobs. One of the ways we make this show possible is through our various partnerships. If you'd like to partner with us, you'd be joining one of the UK's fastest growing business podcasts, reaching over 40,000 listeners every month. We've helped a wide variety of groups tell their story, from the National Farmers Union right through to the FinTech Alliance. So if you'd like to work with us, just go to www.jobsofthefuture.co. To keep up to date with all Jobs of the Future news, you can follow us across all social media, including our brand new TikTok and YouTube channels.